Welcome to episode 90 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring Dr. Scott Robinson, exercise physiologist and performance nutritionist. As you surely know, there's a lot of amazing research going on these days regarding performance nutrition. And along with that, a ton of great performance nutrition researchers. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Robinson. So why did I choose to talk to Dr. Scott Robinson, the Assistant Performance Director at Guru Performance Institute of all people? Well, because he is an expert on perhaps one of the most poorly understood macronutrients when it comes to feeling athletic performance, fat. And why is fat so misunderstood? Should athletes truly be worried about the efficacy of fat adaptation via ketogenic diet as a useful strategy to increasing performance in intermittent sports? For most team sports and other sports where there's a large high-intensity component, then the key would be to prime the, the body to utilize both carbohydrates and fats as and when needed. Uh, and an athlete simply won't be able to do this if they chronically restrict carbohydrates. Athletes need to be able to switch between carbohydrates and fats for fuels. Uh, and really, there's no point in an athlete having gears four, five, and six if they can't use them. So on today's show, we will learn things that we didn't know about fat oxidation and fueling high-performance athletes. We're welcoming today Dr. Scott Robinson. He is an exercise physiologist and performance nutritionist that holds a doctorate in exercise metabolism from the University of Birmingham. Dr. Robinson, you studied for your PhD at the University of Birmingham where your research looked into fat oxidation during exercise. Can you tell me a little bit about fat use during exercise and why this may be important for athletes? Hi, James. Yeah, sure. Firstly, thank you for having me on board with the podcast. It's, uh, it's a great podcast, so it's great to be a part of it all. In terms of the question, what we've known for many years now is that both at rest and, and during exercise as well, the, the body utilizes a combination of carbohydrates, fats, and protein to fuel energy production. Now, generally speaking, the contribution of protein to energy production tends to be quite stable. So it contributes to around about 5 to 10% of energy expended. Uh, however, the contribution of carbohydrates and fats can vary quite tremendously. Uh, and one factor that largely dictates this is the exercise intensity. Uh, so typically, uh, if I take you through it, as exercise intensity increases from low through to high, the, the relative contribution of carbohydrates to energy production increases. Uh, whereas the relative contribution of fat typically declines, meaning that of high exercise intensities and particularly very high exercise intensities, um, so usually about 70% VO2 max and above, the body relies solely on, on carbohydrates for energy production. So the absolute rate of fat oxidation typically shows an inverted hyperbola, so an inverted U-shape, uh, with fat oxidation rates increasing to a maximum, usually a moderate exercise intensity, so around about 50% VO2 max and then declining to eventually become negligible uh, at higher exercise intensities. So this peak, the, the top of the uh, U-shaped curve, uh, is commonly referred to as the maximal rate of fat oxidation, uh, and this is often abbreviated to MFO. Uh, and this could be regarded as a useful marker of a, an individual's capacity to oxidize fat during exercise. What we've learned over the years and, and what my PhD looked into is that there seems to be a tremendous inter-individual variation in this maximal rate of fat oxidation during exercise, uh, as well as the exercise intensity at, at which this occurs. Uh, so this is commonly referred to as an individual's fat max. 
Uh, and this is apparent across a range of populations, including children, uh, recreationally active, lean and overweight, obese populations. But interestingly, also new research has come out in MedSci, I think late last year, really this year, uh, which shows that the variation in, in fat metabolism during exercise extends to athletic populations too. So for instance, in my first study, uh, we recruited a large group of healthy men, found approximately five-fold differences in MFO and fat max uh, across the entire cohort. So MFO ranged from 0.18 grams per minute, so that would be one person, to 1.18 grams per minute. Um, so a considerable variation there, um, but also in terms of the fat max as well, so the exercise intensity that this MFO occurred at um, also ranged from 18% to 78% VO2 max. So essentially what this means is that some people shut off their ability to utilise fats as a fuel at very low exercise intensities. I guess from the perspective of, of athletic performance, this could have pretty big and meaningful implications. So say, for example, we have a, a team of athletes all competing in the same sport. Well, the research has shown that some individuals in a team will switch off their ability to use fats and start to subsequently rely heavily on carbohydrates as fuel at very low exercise intensities. Um, so these will be the guys that we, we class as having a low fat max, uh, whereas others will hold on to their ability to use fats up until very high exercise intensities. Uh, so again, those would be those who have a high fat max. And, and some others too will sit somewhere in the middle. Uh, so really in terms of the nutrition provision, this considerable variation in fat metabolism between sports uh, and also between athletes within the same sport would suggest that individualized strategies may be advantageous to aid the athlete's specific goals. Um, so whether this is body fat loss, weight maintenance uh, and or, or performance orientated goals. Uh, and I really do see these individualized strategies as one way in which teams and athletes can help maximize their nutritional approach in and around training uh, and also competition to really help hand them the edge over their opponents. I guess to give an example, in terms of performance, we know that the majority of intermittent team sports rely heavily on carbohydrates to fuel high intensity efforts. Uh, and really, despite what many, many athletes may think, it's actually the day before competition and not the day of competition that's the best day to, to fuel up and saturate both our liver and muscle glycogen stores so that they're ready for competition. Um, now, if we accurately measure the metabolism of our athletes, we'd be able to identify those athletes in a team who have a low fat max. And for me, it would be these guys who we'd want to pay particular attention to on the day before uh, and the day of competition uh, in terms of their nutrition to ensure that they have adequate carbs in the system and that the right fueling strategies are in place to ensure really that they don't bonk during competition itself uh, as we know that right from the off they'll probably be relying heavily on carbs uh, and we know our carb storage is is limited to around about 60 to 90 minutes of, of exercise looking through a slightly different lens uh, there's also some in emerging evidence to suggest that individuals who have a low capacity to utilize factor in exercise may actually be placed at a greater risk of adverse metabolic health outcomes. Uh, so these would include obesity and type 2 diabetes. Uh, so for me, really, as a practitioner, this gives another reason to assess fat metabolism in, a, in an athletic population uh, so that we can identify those athletes who have a low capacity for fat oxidation uh, and subsequently implement nutritional uh, and or training strategies to increase uh, their capacity to utilise fat uh, and offset the potential risk of adverse health outcomes. Uh, and in my opinion, this could be particularly relevant to athletes who are susceptible to health risks due to their size. Uh, so, for example, a rugby prop or an American football OL or DL who often have high levels of body fat. So by increasing their capacity to use fat as a fuel, we could help to decrease their susceptibility to health risks. 
uh, and really ultimately how to keep them healthy, uh, which I think health should really be at the forefront of any nutritional strategy uh, that's designed to optimize performance. Dr. Robinson, how does one go about measuring MFO? Sure. So there's a, there's a couple of ways in which you can do it, but usually it involves a, a graded incremental exercise test. Um, and you can perform this either on a treadmill or a cycle ergometer. So usually the standard way to do it is to, for example, if we um, talk about treadmill exercise, uh, then we could have a, a participant uh, hooked up to um, an Oxycon or a measuring system that can measure, uh, that can use, sorry, indirect calorimetry to measure oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production. Um, so we can fit a face mask to the participant or the athlete. Uh, and then what we'll do is we'll put them on a graded exercise test. Um, so typically the test will start at a slow, easy walking pace. Uh, and then usually every three minutes, the speed of the treadmill and perhaps also the incline too will increase so that the exercise gets gradually harder and harder for the athlete. Um, and we assess their ability to utilize fat at these different exercise intensities. So the aim really would be for the athlete to stay on for as long as possible. So we'll also get a measure of VO2 max, so aerobic fitness during the exercise test. Um, and we'll measure carbohydrate and fat production all throughout. So we'll be able to accurately identify which, uh, which exercise intensity the athlete reaches his highest rate of fat oxidation um, and also the amount or the total amount of fat that he, he uses at this point also. Based on what you just said, do you see a role for training with reduced carbohydrate availability to improve exercise adaptations and performance? Yes, um, yes and no. But going into the, the, the reduced carbohydrate availability aspect, um, so this is also known as, as training low. Really, we've known for many years that the high carbohydrate availability um, is a key determinant of exercise performance. Uh, and this is largely based upon early observations that witnessed increasing carbohydrate intake prior to exercise leads to an increase in exercise capacity uh, and also exercise performance. Um, and this is an observation that's been confirmed several times over um, since the initial studies. So as such, many athletes have intuitively resorted to keep consuming high carbohydrate diets. However, and I guess somewhat paradoxically, an emerging body of evidence suggests that periodically and strategically restricting carbohydrates in and around training could help to increase the strength of the exercise stimulus uh, and also exercise-induced training adaptations, uh, which in theory could translate to an improvement in, in exercise performance. Now, for me, this is a really attractive proposition for many athletes and their coaches, uh, particularly when an athlete's training load is fully saturated. Um, and so in this respect, training with reduced carbohydrate availability, so so-called training low, uh, could be one means of training smarter uh, and, in, and further enhancing the determinants of performance. Um, in terms of the research itself, there's actually very few studies that have directly addressed the efficacy of training low uh, on exercise performance itself. And, and the results of these studies are somewhat mixed. Um, but that said, one of the most recent studies which came via the French Institute of Sports ex Exercise and Performance uh, implemented the sleep low method, uh, which is, say, for example, a more chronic um, way to train low, where the participants consume, uh, perform exercise on the evening, uh, in the evening time, they then restrict carbohydrates following that, um, and then they train again the next morning having not consumed any carbohydrates for breakfast. So in this study, um, they performed uh, select training sessions over a three-week training period, either in the carbohydrate-restricted state uh, or with carbohydrates in the system. Um, so specifically, 
Uh, the study split the cohort of 21 triathletes into two groups. Um, so these were the sleep group, low group uh, and the control group. Um, so the important thing to, to note here is that both groups consume the same amount of carbohydrate over uh, over the entire period, um, but the two groups differed in, in when the carbohydrates were provided. So um, the study design is, is, I guess, the closest to real-world practice that's been reported. Uh, and interestingly, the research has demonstrated that the triathletes in the sleep low group uh, demonstrated greater improvements in, in 10K time trial running performance, um, as well as cycling economy uh, and body composition improved more so as well when compared with the control group. Um, so I think studies such as the INSEPT trial are absolutely essential for us to be able to extrapolate research findings and apply them with a certain degree of confidence into applied practice. Um, but certainly the research is in its infancy here. So, you know, more investigations like this are needed. Uh, and we anticipate this will work. This work has, has really raised the bar for research in terms of who will go on to assess the worthiness of, of carbohydrate manipulation in and around exercise for athletes. Um, so certainly there's some promise for training those strategies. But I think for me, when trying to implement these strategies with athletes, there's, there's some key considerations to, to take into account. So firstly, and, and very importantly, I think we should appreciate that the laboratory studies that have been performed, they may not have been sensitive enough to detect meaningful physiological changes that would otherwise be highly relevant to real world performance. So perhaps those studies that haven't shown a performance advantage um, in the real world, it could lead to a significant um, a significant impact. In other words, there may be a very small and, and physiologically meaningful improvement in performance, but the lab trials uh, may not be sensitive enough to pick those up. It's also probably important to note that statistical significance for a journal, um, so usually placed at the, the P is less than 0.05 level, is sometimes very diff uh, different to the physiological significance for an athlete, and this is likely to be much larger than what we think it is in the laboratory. Um, so really to try and put this into perspective, the, the mean difference between first and fourth place at the London 2012 and Sochi 2014 Olympics uh, was 0.4%. Um, so this is a difference that, that may fail to reach statistical significance in the lab, but is obviously highly meaningful in the real world performance setting is that, you know, it's a difference between meddling and, and not meddling. I think as well, you know, when training low, we should think about its potential impact upon immune function. Um, so if we are to advise athletes to train low, I certainly wouldn't recommend that they do it um, consistently um, and perform every session low um, because it could have a negative impact on immune function. Training intensity as well. Um, so RPE will typically be a little bit higher. Um, so we don't want the training intensity to be compromised and the quality of the session to be compromised. Um, so I'd probably advocate the use of, of training low um, and target those sessions towards low intensity sessions. And also its potential impact on muscle mass as well. So we know that training low increases muscle protein breakdown. So what I'd probably look to do from a nutritional perspective is when the athletes are training low, just ensure that they have um, sufficient protein intake um, before, during uh, and after exercise to really help try and stimulate muscle protein synthesis and, and make sure that there's no detrimental effect on, on muscle mass as well. Um, there's some really nice research come out from the Liverpool John Moores University Lab and uh, Sam Impey over there has been doing some nice work and he's shown that leucine and rich protein feeding doesn't induce a reduction in fat metabolism during exercise um, so we can actually consume some protein during the exercise part when we're training low and it won't take us out of this, um, this, this particular state.
Dr. Robinson, as you may know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast work in intermittent sport. Talked about the efficacy of fat adaptation, or as an example of that would be a ketogenic diet. Can you uh, briefly explain what fat adaptation is and whether or not you would think it would be a useful strategy for high-performing intermittent sport athletes? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question, probably a podcast in itself and, and certainly a controversial one, but I'll, I'll do my best to um, shed my thoughts on the area. So just to provide a bit of background, there's, there's this concept now that if you massively change your diet to eat a lot of fat-based foods, uh, and subsequently severely restrict your carbohydrate intake for a period of weeks or months. Uh, then you force your body into using fats as a fuel source uh, and it, at an intensity where you normally might be oxidizing carbohydrates. Now, in theory, this could be advantageous for exercise performance, uh, given that even a very lean athlete stores a large amount of energy as fat. So, for example, a lean athlete who is around about 70 kg with 9-10% body fat would store around about 9-15 to 15 kilograms of, of fat, which would be sufficient to fuel them to walk for around about 16,000 kilometers. Um, whereas on the flip side, and, and relative to fat, we store very little carbohydrate. Uh, so we store around about 2,000 to 2,500 kcals of carbs, mainly in, in the muscle as muscle glycogen, um, and the liver as liver glycogen. And this is enough to fuel around about 60 to 90 minutes of, of high-intensity exercise after which we run out if we don't feed during the exercise part itself. Theory is that if we can prime our body to utilize this abundant fat fuel source, then theoretically we can spare the limited carbohydrates uh, and potentially this could lead to enhancement in exercise performance. Um, but I guess really the, the issue is that most elite level sports, um, so particularly as you mentioned, the intermittent team sports, uh, rely heavily on, on high intensity efforts. And to perform these well, the body needs to use carbohydrates as a fuel source. So it's a far more efficient fuel source than, than fat. Um, and no matter how theoretically fat adapted the athlete is, um, they will need to rely on these carbohydrates to perform the high intensity efforts. And so really, if the athlete does go on this high fat, low carbohydrate diet for a prolonged period of time, um, then perhaps the biggest problem I see is that an enzyme called PDH, so pyruvate dehydrogenase, becomes inhibited. Uh, and that's the key enzyme that allows an athlete to utilize carbs during exercise, particularly during high intensity efforts. Um, as well as this down regulation of PDH, the body's ability to effectively um, digest and absorb carbohydrates will become impaired. Um, so really, when it comes to the sprints, it's unlikely that the athlete will be able to perform these as well as they could do. Uh, before they became fat adapted so intense so the intensity during training competition will will likely become impaired uh, and as well as i mentioned earlier the problem with chronically restricting carbohydrates is that the immune system might also be a little bit compromised i guess if we take a look into uh, the research and, and see what the research has to say about this well today there's only been one study by finney um, in the 1980s uh, that's shown a performance benefit of a high fat ketogenic diet um, and this study was performed on, on six people, so just six people, of which two did better, two did worse, and, and two stayed the same. Um, so that's really the best evidence to date. Um, so really, yes, it's an interesting concept, but at least to date there isn't any evidence, uh, except perhaps anecdotal, uh, in the literature or from my own experience working with athletes that convinces me about it. Now, there may be some instances in, in terms of exercise performance where fat adaptation could be worthwhile. Um, so, say, for instance, if the, we're performing an ultramarathon, so say, for example, the Marathon de Sable, and carbohydrate provision is, is limited, then it may be worthwhile, you know, trying to maximize our ability to utilize fat during exercise, as we know that there's not going to be a, 
a supermarket, so a Walmart along the way for us to pick up some carbohydrates. Um, but probably for most team sports and other sports where there's a high intensity uh, component, uh, then the key will be really to prime the, the body to utilize both carbohydrates and fats as and when needed. Um, so in terms of nutrition around training, one approach could be to perform some, but certainly not all exercise, ex, uh, exercise sessions in the carbohydrate restricted state. Uh, which will help to increase the abundance and activity of enzymes related to fat metabolism during exercise, uh, but importantly to perform other sessions, and particularly those that are high intensity in nature, uh, with some carbohydrates in the system, so that the body is primed to use these as and when needed during competition. Uh, and then in and around competition, for most elite athletes, the research shows us that we should uh, provide a high carbohydrate diet so that we have plenty of carbohydrates to get through the competition. Um, so that would involve carb loading the day before a game, um, some carbs the morning before the game, primarily to top up the liver glycogen, uh, and then perhaps some also during half time too. Um, I think lastly, just from an, uh, an impl implementation perspective, um, even if you do, as a practitioner, see a need to implement a high-fat ketogenic diet, um, then it's probably going to be very difficult to get your athletes to stick to this. Uh, especially over the long term. Um, granted, there may be some athletes who, who could do this, um, but for most, it's, it's not going to be possible and, and could well have you in, in the bad books um, right from the off, which, which might then affect any guidance or interventions you, you give therein. Dr. Robinson, uh, outside of you being a, a researcher, you have also have a wide range of experience in applied settings where you've worked with a variety of high-performance teams and athletes. What have you learned from your experiences and what are some main considerations based on working as an applied performance nutritionist? Yeah, good, good question, James. I think probably from the offset for me, you know, I went in doing internships all throughout my kind of bachelor's degree and master's degree. And, you know, I learned, I learned so much throughout those, those experiences. It really helped to open my eyes as to how the science that we learn in the classroom is, is effectively applied into the real world performance setting. I think first and foremost, it's, it's important to develop relationships with athletes and generally show an interest in them. This is, I think, absolutely critical for practitioners. Um, it really helps to gain their trust um, and also gain their buy-in as well. Um, so buy-in, you know, as I'm sure we're all aware, is, is absolutely critical. And, and this extends to nutrition as well. You know, if the athlete doesn't buy into nutrition, then they're far less likely to take on board your advice and they're far less likely to actually come to you and, and ask for help. And I think really education is also key. So really with any intervention that I like to give or any of my recommendations, I won't just put it out there and expect the person to know, you know, why I'm recommending what I am. Um, I'll always try and educate along the way whenever I can. Um, so for me, it's all about explaining why uh, I'm recommending what I am uh, and importantly, how this can influence their performance. And if the athletes actually see how this in can improve their performance, um, then they're far more likely to buy in. Um, and instead of me going to them and hassling them, then they're more likely to, to come to me. Um, I think, you know, as well as this, communication is key. Um, so you have to appreciate the athlete that you're working with in terms of their level of buy-in, uh, in terms of their genuine interest in nutrition, um, and also in terms of their pre-existing knowledge of nutrition as well. When I first started out, I, as a practitioner, I gave a, a presentation. I was asked to give a presentation at, at a club, um, and it was on game day nutrition. 
um, minus one, so the game day, uh, the day before a game. Um, so I provided a really nice overview, or what I thought was a really nice overview, of uh, the, the key nutritional priorities the day before a game. Um, so, of course, this included carbohydrate loading. Um, so I thought I'll try and get this across to the guys in the best way possible. So one approach that I had was to, on a, on a keynote slide, just put up a, a pyramid of toast. Um, I think there was about 11 or 12 uh, slices of toast in, in this pyramid in total. And I really wanted to try and hit home the point that the athletes should try and consume uh, more carbohydrates at breakfast, lunch and dinner throughout the day before uh, and also eat some carbohydrate based snacks too. Uh, and the pyramid was really there to show them or place emphasis on how much carbohydrates they would need to consume. So I said that during a game, um, you'll typically burn through around about 1000 calories of, of, of carbohydrates. And in terms of a, a pyramid of toast, this is this is what it would look like. So the presentation went well. Um, a few days later after the game, I went back into the club and then I did some one to one consultations with the players. So this is this is where it gets quite interesting in that one of the players came in and I said, you know, how did you how did you play? And he said, oh, I played well. And then I said, you know, did you take on board my advice? Did you enjoy the presentation? Did you learn anything from it? And he said, oh, you know, I already knew it all already. You know, I did a, I did a bachelor's in, in sports nutrition uh, at Loughborough University. Um, so I'm already really clued up on this. I, I want to know the specifics. Um, so I was like, okay, great. So for that athlete, I could go into, you know, a little bit more depth with him. Um, but then straight after that, another guy comes in. Um, I said, you know, again, how did you play? He said, oh, I played the best I've ever played. And I said, oh, brilliant. Um, you know, did you enjoy the presentation? Um, did you take much from it? And he said, oh, yeah. Um, he said, I did exactly what you said. And I said, okay, well, what's that? And he said, oh, I um, <laughs> I just ate a shitload of toast. So uh, so I was like, what, what do you mean you just ate a load of toast? And he said, um, well, I counted the, the pieces of toast on the pyramid and I ate that many rounds of toast as, as well as having some more carbs with my breakfast, lunch and dinner and carbohydrate-based snacks too. And so this time, point in time, I'm beginning to panic a little bit. You know, you don't have toast by itself. So I said, you know, well, what did you put on the toast? And he said, well, we were away, you know, so um, the options were butter or jam. So he said on half of them, I had some butter and then on half, I had some jam. So I thought, oh, no, you know, this guy's gone and consumed around about 2000 calories of on top of what he's already consuming kind of thing, just because, you know, my message hasn't quite got across in, in the right way to him. Um, so just an example of a scenario there where, I thought that my recommendations were really, really good, but actually they weren't tailored um, to the individual. So just going back to the original point, I think it's really important that as practitioners, um, as and when possible, we should really try and provide uh, on nutrition guidance on, a, on an individual level basis um, and all the while taking into account you know, the knowledge base of, of the athlete, their buy-in, um, and also um, their level of level of education. I think as well, it's uh, it's really important to work integratively. Um, so with each role that I work in, uh, with each club and team, I always try, and try to work integratively with the sports science team, um, showing appreciation for their area of expertise. Uh, and, you know, subsequently, you know, I've learned that they will then show an appreciation for mine. You know, when I first started out as a practitioner, I'd go into a club perhaps one or two days a week on a consultancy basis, whereas the sports science staff, the S&C coaches, et cetera, they were employed full time. So really by developing relationships with them, showing an appreciation for their area, building relationships, building trust, getting them to see how nutrition can impact performance really helped me. Um, because it just meant that when I wasn't there at the club, they would be there to kind of oversee nutrition and make sure the lads are, you know, implementing the recommendations that 
that I advised. So really, they were my eyes on the ground when when I wasn't there. So, so yeah, I guess the key points for me, I mean, I could speak for quite a while on it, but would be to develop relationships, um, show a genuine interest in the athletes as well. So talk about nutrition with them, but also talk about um, general day-to-day life things too. That will help to build their trust. Implement education where possible. Try and provide nutritional advice on an individual basis. Uh, and also work integratively as that's really going to have a, a really positive impact upon on performance and, and yourself as a practitioner working within that team. As soon as you started telling that story, I had a feeling that it was going to involve someone just counting how many pieces of toast and, and downing it. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a, a big lesson learned that was, James, and one that I won't make again. <laughs> Talking about uh, big lessons, so having worked as a strength and conditioning coach, one area that is very popular with athletes is sports supplements. I mean, they, they come, they want knowledge whether they should be having whey protein, taking BCAs, or a whole host of very common sports supplements. So having having worked in these high-performance team with high-performance teams and athletes, what is your take on the use of supplements and sport, and how do you approach this with specific athletes? Yeah, again, a, a great question and, and a massive one. So first and foremost, I think really the, the key is in the name, uh, in that it's a supplement, uh, and it should definitely not be a substitute for a, a good diet. Um, so really, I think a major misconception in the world of sport is that supplements are an essential component of an athlete's diet. Um, so whether this means dietary supplements for nutrients that may otherwise be lacking in the diet or ergogenic aids that can potentially improve recovery, uh, training and, and competition performance. Um, now at the elite end of the spectrum, ergogenic aids might provide an incremental improvement in performance um, and or recovery. Um, however, in a majority of cases, the need to supplement is usually overcome, I think, by the management of the core diet. Um, so really that would be ensuring a, a well-balanced diet, which would include a variety of sources of protein, carbohydrates and fats, uh, as well as fruits and vegetables, of course, uh, in appropriate amounts and at the appropriate times. Uh, and really, we typically refer to this as the food first approach, um, which essentially puts a balanced diet at the forefront of an athlete's nutrition um, with supplements used where appropriate to, to supplement the diet. Um, if the diet is on point, then I'd consider using supplements to try and eke out an extra 2%, 1% to 2% in performance. Um, so a great way to kind of conceptualize this is that a balanced diet forms the bulk of a cake. Sports nutrition, so periodized sports nutrition is the icing uh, and supplementation is, is just really the sprinkles on top. Now, there may be a number of reasons that, that prompt supplemental support. So in our experience, the main supplements that we advise are typically protein, uh, creatine, beta alanine, vitamin D and caffeine. Um, so, for instance, in terms of vitamin D, which plays an important role in, in quite a lot of physio- physiological functions, uh, including bone health and repair, muscle recovery and remodeling and also immune health. We know that especially in the winter months, athletes tend to be deficient in vitamin D uh, and the chances of correcting this naturally. So via sunlight exposure is, is actually quite low, uh, which means the supplementation may be necessary. If there's a need or if we see a need for creatine, then it takes around about uh, just as an example, five kilograms of steak to get the amount of creatine you'd need for, for loading. Um, so again, if we if we see a need, then supplementation may be necessary there. But, you know, even with that said, I do think that even when the need to supplement has been identified, um, there's still a, a number of considerations to be made. Um, and actually, this is really nicely summarized by the UK Sport and Exercise Nutrition Decision-Making Flowchart. Uh, which is actually freely available on their website. So I'd certainly recommend people go take a look at that when they get a chance. 
Um, but I'll briefly talk you through it. Um, so firstly, uh, the first decision to be made is when considering using a supplement is, is it proven to improve health or your sport specific performance? If no, do, don't use. Um, if yes, um, then we can ask ourselves, is it lacking in sufficient quantities in, in real food? Um, if no, don't use. If yes, um, then we go on and we think, you know, has it been checked for ingredients for prohibited substances? If no, then definitely don't use. Uh, and if yes, um, has the product been batch tested? If it hasn't, then don't use. Uh, but if it has, um, then we can consider uh, using the, the product. Um, but I think even when we see a need uh, to supplement and when we've considered all of these things, I think we really have to emphasize that it is 100% the athlete's choice. Um, so certainly from my own perspective, I'd never force anything upon an athlete. Um, in fact, some of the best, best athletes that I've worked with don't touch supplements. Um, so they certainly aren't essential to perform well, but they could maybe try and eke out, like I said, that extra one to two percent in performance. Um, but I think, you know, the key point here is that it should always be 100 percent the athlete's choice. Uh, and then, of course, if we are going to supplement, then it's important to manage the expectations with the athlete. So say, for example, if it's an 800 meter race, the athlete's been using beta alanine in the weeks leading up to the race. The research has shown that it improves running performance, endurance performance by, you know, two to three percent, then we, we really shouldn't go and tell our athletes that they'll be two to three percent faster because the chances are that it probably won't affect them in the same way. It may give them an advantage, but it certainly won't give them a, a two to three percent advantage over the person next to them on the start line. And also usually with really high performing athletes, the other guys are really switched on anyway. So they, they're probably taking beta alanine too. So really it's a case of the athlete that you're working with just catching up. So yeah, identify the need, um, identify the risk, um, and then consider using the supplement would be the key points. It's always 100% the athlete's choice. Uh, and then once it's been taken, we it's important that we as practitioners uh, really help to manage those expectations. As you mentioned, you do consulting work with teams and athletes. So I guess a, a question that I have is when it comes to nutritional work and sports nutrition for optimizing performance, are you finding that more clubs and athletes are open to it? Or is there still a bit of skepticism when it comes to nutrition being an important factor? Yeah, I definitely think the more and more teams are appreciating the role of nutrition in enhancing sports performance. Um, I think it's, it's, it's great to see. Um, and I know that, you know, there's multiple elite level teams now employing at least one nutritionist on a full time basis. Um, with some even recruiting performance chefs to help work with the practitioners and athletes. Uh, to create meals that are on point from a nutritional perspective, um, but also that that appeals to the athlete. So one club that I know are doing this at, at Tottenham Football Club, which is actually my team, by the way, so I hope I don't lose any listeners saying that. And they actually have their own fruit and vegetable garden at the training ground, um, which, is, which is just brilliant to see. So I think it's great that clubs are becoming increasingly switched on to the benefits of, of nutrition. Um, and to be honest, I'm sure they'll reap the rewards for, for doing so. Um, and as well, I think it's great news for upcoming practitioners who are looking to land a job after their studies, um, really as hopefully more doors will be open for them to, to work in the high performance applied setting. Since we're on the topic of budding sport nutritionists or those who are going to be interested in going into the field of applied sports and exercise nutrition, you did a variety of internships during your bachelor's and, and master's degree. Based on all of that experience and your experiences working both in research and in an applied setting, 
What would be your advice for budding sports nutritionists? Yeah, another good question, James. I think that experience is key. So you can have some really good qualifications under your belt, but usually most jobs require, uh, you know, at least one to two years of, of experience. So for budding nutritionists out there, I'd say, you know, just try and get yourself out there, try and get some experience. It might not necessarily even matter so much the, the level at which you get the experience. So on a CV, you know, if you if you aren't able to land an internship or get experience with a high performance club, then, you know, go to your local club, uh, work with some recreational athletes or some semi-professional athletes. Um, because for me, at least, this this would look really, really good because it would show that you've kind of gone the extra mile. It's not the sexiest of environments to be in, I'd imagine, but it shows that you've kind of dug in, got your hands dirty um, and really gone out of the way to try and get some experience too. I'd say as well, just, just always try and dedicate some time to reading um, and develop your own professional network. Um, so, you know, in the field of nutrition, it, it's constantly evolving. There's always new research coming out, um, new thoughts and opinions, etc. But really, you know, it's important to, I would say, to try and set aside at least half an hour a day, um, maybe even an hour if you can find the time just to try and try and read read, and just stay clued up on, on the research that's coming out. But, you know, in contrast to this, I think it's important as well to appreciate that you can't know absolutely everything in the field of sports nutrition um, and you're not expected to. Um, so don't put too much pressure on yourself. Um, and actually, this is where a network can come in. So if you, over time, develop your own professional network by working. So part of my role at Group Performance is to work on the ISSN diploma in applied sports and exercise nutrition. Um, and so over the last four years, we've developed a, an extensive professional network um, with various different high performance practitioners and researchers. Um, so what I would do is if, if an athlete came to me and asked me about something and I didn't know the answer, you know, first and foremost, I'd, I'd hold my hands up. I'd say, I don't know, but I'll go and find out. Then I'll get in touch with, with the expert who I know is the expert in that area um, and go and ask them for their opinion. Some Sometime down the line, they might come to you for some advice as well. Um, so really, my kind of key point there would be to try and stay as clued up on the theory as you can. Um, but also develop a professional network that can help you when you're in the applied setting, especially if an athlete comes to you or a coach or a sports scientist and asks about a particular nutritional protocol, you know, so that you can refer um, or you can go and seek uh, advice from an expert who you're friends with uh, and they can give you some advice too. As well, I'd, I'd say that it's important to reflect as, as often as possible. A really nice quote from Dr. James Morton, uh, who came and lectured for us, uh, was that you don't learn from experience you learn by reflecting on experience so really i've just tried to refine my approach to practice over the years as much as possible um, and you know reflections really helped me with this um, and also it's good to have a critical friend um, so a group performance i um i have dr daniel owens and, and laurent bannock who's my boss um, and you know we're always exchanging thoughts and ideas and, and being critical towards our approaches to, to ch try and help improve um, so I think that's really essential too. Lastly, I'd probably say that I'd recommend that those who are in the UK um, check out the UK Sport and Exercise Nutrition Register. Um, and this is a voluntary-based register of choice for sport and exercise nutrition professionals here in the UK. So many top teams and institutions such as the English Institute of Sport, um, and as well, I've just seen a job post for a performance nutritionist at Scottish Rugby, um, and now recruit who are recruiting, sorry, now require candidates to, to be centre-registered. Um, so if I was an undergraduate or a postgraduate level student, then I'd certainly take a look at their website um, to see what it is I need to do in order to get onto the register um, and really help to, to stand out on a, on a job application.
if anyone listening to this podcast episode wants to reach out to you, uh, what is the best way they can do so? Yeah, sure. So uh, happy for anybody to send any questions my way by email. So my email is scott at guruperformance.co.uk. Um, and then also my Twitter handle is at scottrobinson8. Perfect. And I'll make sure to link that in the show notes, which is found on my website, historicperformance.net. Thanks, James. Dr. Robinson, I just want to say uh, a huge thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Historic Performance Podcast. If you have any suggestions in terms of guests, please feel free to reach out. The best way to contact me is either via Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Historic Perform or visit the website historicperformance.net where you can not only find the show notes, but also find the contact page. So you can contact me that way. Greatly appreciate any suggestions and I'll see you guys next week.